Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in. In this episode, we talk with John Scrantney, Professor of Sociology and Co-Director of the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies at UC San Diego. His work focuses on public policy, law, and inequality. Today we discuss his recent book, After Civil Rights, Racial Realism in the New American Workplace. Welcome to the Society Pages podcast. I'm called Office Hours. I'm talking today with John Scrantony. So welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. We're going to talk today about how um, civil rights and affirmative action have changed since the 1960s, uh, which you discuss in your book. So let's start with a historical take. So in the past, what kind of strategies have employers used to manage decisions about race in the workplace? Well, I focus uh, mainly on the 1960s and and what happened after the 1960s. And so I'm going to answer your question talking about that period. And I think that we can identify three different strategies that employers have used since the 1960s to manage racial difference in the workplace. And the the key distinction to make, I believe, is between civil rights laws, and I'm talking here about Title VII, especially about Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is seeing its 50th anniversary this year, um, and affirmative action, those are on one side. And then there's a new strategy that I'm calling racial realism, and that's on the other side. And what distinguishes civil rights law like Title VII and affirmative action is that they were really about individuals. They were about helping minorities, racial minorities, um, to some extent, women as well. And they were about trying to create equal opportunities and justice for for racial minorities. Racial realism, on the other hand, is really about helping organizations. It's about the effectiveness of organizations. And that's a a very different goal. So what, what civil rights law like Title VII did was they told employers, do not take racial difference into account. Don't see racial difference. Don't think about racial difference. Certainly don't act on racial difference. Treat every employee as a bundle of abilities and, you know, a bundle of uh, experiences and hire, place, and promote those employees based on those abilities and, and, and experiences that those workers have. So Title VII said do not discriminate. Do not take race into account. You know, that, that, that was passed in 1964, and uh, it came into effect in 1965. And a few years after that, uh, a new strategy began to emerge. And it started to happen among employers themselves. And also the government started to issue some executive orders and some guidelines and some regulations. And this was about similarly about individuals, and it was similarly about justice and equal opportunity. But affirmative action really told employers or or 
you know, it, it was a vision for managing race in the workplace that said, we're going to take race into account, but only in a way that helps us ensure that we're, that we're ensuring uh, equal opportunities and justice. So race wasn't really real. It wasn't really right. useful to employers. It was just a marker. It was just an indicator for how well they were doing on their road to providing equal opportunity and justice. So racial realism then comes in. You can find instances of it actually throughout American history, but it really begins to emerge in the 1980s. And that's where employers begin to say, hey, race is something useful to us. Race is something that we can manipulate strategically in order to help us achieve our organizational goals. In private employment, those organizational goals are obviously going to be profits. And in public employment, those organizational goals are going to be focused on effectiveness for, for citizens, voters, or, or residents. But it's really treating race as a, as a real and, and I mean that in the ontological sense, as, as something real and, and, a, and a relevant and useful part of an employee. So what are some specific institutions where you've seen this practice really come to the forefront? Well, in the book, I organize the chapters based on, on different legal regimes and how they govern different institutions that where where we can see racial realism and i start with with white collar prof and professional employment and so really i think we can see racial realism in businesses across america it 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 really comes in two different modes sarah and i think one of these um we can call racial abilities and this is where an employer believes that employees actually vary in their ability to perform on the job based on their their race. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a classic example, and one that we really saw is, as early as the early part of the 20th century, was employers believing that different uh, individuals of different racial groups could design marketing campaigns, hmm. that they could, they, they could sell products right. better to individuals of their own race than, than designing marketing campaigns across race. Um, and so, you know, any business that was interested in selling things, um, Pepsi-Cola was an early, uh, early adopter of this. They began to hire and place and promote people of color, specifically African-Americans, based on their ability to design ad campaigns and to, and to sell products to fellow African-Americans. There's another mode of racial realism, though, that I call racial signaling. And this is the notion that employers believe that, you know, maybe races, people of different racial backgrounds don't really vary in their ability to perform on the job. But consumers and citizens and residents of different neighborhoods, they will perceive uh, employees of different races in different ways and therefore their race is relevant and it'll matter on the job. And this is something that we see in businesses all the time when they're trying to, uh, when they're trying to emphasize how diverse they are just by, just by signaling to different audiences that they might have people on their staff who, um, uh, you know, share the same race of particular targeted um, client bases. Mm -hmm. There's a couple legal scholars, uh, Mitu Gulati and Patrick Shin, who wrote a nice law review article. They call this showcasing diversity. Right. And they point out that sometimes it can just read, uh, it can just relate or produce, you know, sort of token hiring. You just need one or two people of color in order to showcase diversity and show that that you are, um, to show that you are, you know, a diverse and and open workplace. 
but but you can see this you can see this all over uh, the business world. And there was a there was a really great article written by Eric Rodsky and Diva Pager, and I want to give them credit for this, where they were examining black and white um, income differences, and they found that black and white income differences were greatest in occupations where where a person's compensation is is often based on their client's ability to pay. Right. And so we could see, um, and, and this to me then is, is really a measure of where racial realism is occurring. And um, you can see this in um, uh, lawyers. So, so a black lawyer tends to make less than a white lawyer, and that's because they typically will have um, black clients, uh, real estate agents, uh, financial advisors, uh, physicians, um, William Bealby did some has done some great work looking at how uh, financial firms have have tended to match their employees, their financial advisors, with their clients, and 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 they're and thereby limiting their compensation because, as every social scientist knows, African Americans uh, tend to have uh, less wealth than than white Americans uh, do, and so if compensation is based on the wealth of your clients, then then that's going to systematically limit um, income levels. So we can see this stuff all over the the, the private spec, the private uh, sector. But um, I focus especially in the book on on medicine, just because there's a lot of advocacy for racial realism there. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of people believe that the way to give the best medicine to Americans is to match the the race of the physician with the race of the of the patient. Um, I focus a lot on on marketing because it's especially prominent there. Um, I focus on um, low-skilled employers, something that I didn't talk about in my New York Times piece, but low-skilled employers frequently will hire on the basis of race as well as immigrant status on the belief that there are racial abilities and specifically mm-hmm. the belief that Latinos and Asians are better workers than whites and especially African-Americans. You gave an interview just this week where your co-respondent uh, was sort of promoting this idea of cultural competency as being Mm -hmm. a great skill um, in the workplace. How do you kind of respond to that argument, or is that even really a counter-argument to what you're studying? Uh, That's that's a great question. So um, what you're talking about is an interview I did in the local San Diego uh, KPBS station, and, and they brought in someone who who her first statement was to simply deny that uh, racial realism was occurring in the workplace. And, and then she said what employers want is, is cultural competency or cultural competence. And that's what they were trying to do. And I agree with her a hundred percent. I think that that's basically what I'm talking about when I'm saying, when I'm describing racial abilities and uh, the, the problem is when employers begin to stereotype employees and they basically treat race as a signifier of whether or not the, the, the worker has these different abilities or not. So race becomes – that becomes what the employer uses to, to manage their workplace, even if they're thinking at the end of the day that what they're trying to get is certain, certain kinds of competence. Now, in, in answering your previous question, I talked about private sector, but there are areas in the public sector where race uh, ra- racial realism is, is quite prominent. Right. And one of those is is education, specifically the role of teachers, though there's other educational positions where you can see racial realism. Um, and another another area is is law enforcement and especially police officers. And these are two areas where uh, the employer will talk about cultural competence. 
um, that, you know, they want teachers who can understand the distinctive learning styles of, of Latino students, say, or African-American students, or they want police officers who understand the, the culture of particular, particular neighborhoods, and they won't freak out when they see certain things that, that are not threatening, but, but they might perceive as threatening if they don't understand the culture. Uh, and and I understand all of that. All of that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and and if you talk to um, police departments, they'll they'll talk a lot about cultural competence, and and language is a big part of that. But at the end of the day, they also will be using racial realism when they're hiring and placing um, teachers and and police officers. And um, and and that's you know as I, as I mentioned before, that's partly because they see race as a as as something that that denotes a kind of competence or racial ability. And also because of this other dynamic I mentioned, which is, which is the racial signaling dynamic. And that is something that you can't teach. Whenever you hear uh, someone in a school district, whenever you hear an administrator in universities or secondary schools or, or primary schools, when they talk about the importance of role models, of racial role models, now we're not talking about cultural competence anymore. We're talking about racial realism, pure and simple. We're talking about something that cannot be taught. And we can, we can discuss and debate how valuable it is, but it's certainly an, an instance where race is being treated as a qualification, as something useful and something that can be strategically manipulated in the workplace. Same thing with uh, police officers. I, I, I mentioned in the book that um, there was a study done in Houston in, uh, several years ago about uh, Latino residents in, in the city of Houston who may have been victimized by a crime and how they might wait for days before they saw a officer in the department, an officer in the, in, in the, sorry, in the neighborhood who looked Latino before they reported the crime. They, they wanted that sense of trust that they, that they felt when they were dealing with, with one of their own on the, in the police force. And that's something that, you know, you could have a, an African-American cop or a, or a white cop who, you know, speaks perfect Spanish and understands Latino culture, maybe even spent several years abroad in Mexico or Nicaragua or El Salvador. But if they don't look Latino, that, that resident might not feel comfortable with them. And police departments know this, and this is partly why they they use racial realism in hiring and placing officers. So beyond some of the kind of market effects we discussed earlier, what other kind of tangible effects have you identified or have social scientists identified from this type of practice? Well, as I mentioned uh, earlier, there's the, the, the situations where uh, African-American wages will be lower when they are, are racially matched with, with their clients in certain kinds of occupations. And in the book, I describe a situation where um, the Walgreens drugstore chain, which I think was, was, was trying to be progressive and trying to do the right thing, uh, they actually had a pretty good record of hiring uh, African-American store managers. They tended to place those African-American store managers in African-American neighborhoods. But then, and this is one of the uh, main reasons for my book, they didn't change their compensation system. And what that meant was that Managers in the Walgreens drugstore chain, drugstore chain were were promoted and compensated based on the sales figures from their stores. Yeah. But some of these African American managers were placed in in poorer African American neighborhoods. One of them, for example, was in East St. Louis, and and therefore their their compensation was was systematically uh, hindered and limited when compared to to white managers. 
And they, they, with the help of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, they litigated and were able to uh, win a $24 million settlement, settlement with Walgreens. So that's a very tangible effect of, of racial realism. In the book, I do not spend very much time talking about how racial realism benefits whites, even though everyday racial realism does benefit whites. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's certainly in the upper levels of, of, of firms. Uh, it, uh, I, I believe that, that firms believe it's beneficial to have uh, white people, especially white men, in positions of visibility and power at the top of their corporations. And the reason I don't talk about this so much in the book is that the firms don't talk about this. Mm-hmm. When I'm talking about racial realism, I'm talking about strategies that firms and the government openly promote. I mean, they say that they're doing it and they're and they're proud of it. And it's and it's very consciously a part of their employment strategies. And so that's what I'm that's what I'm targeting. It's it's not something that's that's really underground. It's it's quite it's quite prominent. You can even look at the websites of of you know major corporations. I was I was looking at the Charles Schwab website recently, partly because you know Bill Bilby's work on on how financial firms use racial realism. Right. The Charles Schwab firm they they openly say that they want their workforce to match their clients. And if 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 you know a lot about employment discrimination law, you will know that that's actually not the way employment law is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to make employ- your employees match your applicant pool, not your client base. Right. And the reason for that is because in 1964, Alabamans, you know, they, you know, they, they could argue all the time, well, you know, my clients are white and so I have to have white employees. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the government did not want to have that kind of situation. They wanted, for them, this, the, the measure of equal opportunity and justice is whether the people being hired mirrored the qualified applicant pool, not the customer base. Recently, there was a big Supreme Court decision that upheld Michigan's ban on affirmative action. Um, so how have we seen this in, you know, given our audience, a lot of people are interested in higher ed, how has this played out in college admissions and what does this recent decision mean um, in the context of your work? Well, I think it's interesting uh, I'll say a couple of things about this. One is that I, I make a distinction between employment and university admissions mm-hmm. um, because employment's a little bit different. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 explicitly says you cannot make race a job qualification. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about university admissions, uh, Title VII does not apply. Title VII only refers to employment. So university administrators have traditionally had more more flexibility to treat race as a qualification. I think it's unfortunate that um, in the Bakke decision back in the 1970s, uh, we, we really changed the way we think about the use of race in admissions without changing our terminology. Yeah. We had traditionally used what we called affirmative action in order to provide equal opportunity for minorities to be admitted to our nation's universities. And then with the Bakke decision, we talked about diversity being a compelling interest that, that justified the use of race in university admissions. And we kept calling it affirmative action, but it, yeah. was, really, it was really very different. The, the, the intent and the motive of using race had completely changed. 
when when universities began to talk about diversity, they were talking about the benefits to their organization and not so much the benefits to the minority student. Yeah. And that's so it's really kind of similar to racial realism, even though if, if it's legally a little bit different. So what we've been seeing in the Supreme Court over the past few years for the past few years are a series of decisions which have made it harder and harder for universities to um, to, to use race in this way, uh, in a kind of racial realist way. The universities want to use race. I, I think that they, they, they do believe that the diversity confers educational benefits. And I think that they also believe that uh, they want to provide equal opportunity to um, people of color to be admitted. The thing I, w I really want to highlight about this, though, is that there's there's really a lot of hypocrisy in the Supreme Court, and I'm, I, I perhaps hypocrisy is a kind of a strong term. But if you look at if you look at the opinions of the conservative justices who were appointed by Republicans, they will say things about how terrible it is to take race into account, and how the government should not be dividing on the basis of race. And you know, Justice Roberts famously said, "The way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating yeah. on the basis of race." But at the same time, if we look at the Republican Party and the the top levels of the major decision makers of the Republican Party, they regularly use racial realism when um, when allocating opportunities. So, if you are a conservative person of color, you can expect a rapid rise in the ranks of the Republican Party. And so in the book I describe yeah. I describe Clarence Thomas who was barely uh, uh, who's barely in the federal courts for for more than a year before he was elevated to the Supreme Court to replace Thurgood Marshall. Um, and uh, I, I use a political cartoon in the book where um, where President George H.W. Bush says, you know, I'm against quotas or I'm, I'm anti-quota but I'm pro-coincidence. And um, mm. so he replaced an African-American justice with a, with a conservative African-American justice. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was racial realism. He was doing it so that uh, the Republican Party wouldn't look racist, so that they could, they could try to signify that, um, that, they're, uh, that it's okay for African-Americans to be conservative. And the Republican Party has been using this strategy um, from the 80s, 90s through the 2000s. We can, we can identify different conservatives of color and, and, and watch their rise. You know, Bobby Jindal is one of the more recent ones mm -hmm. um, to be given. Uh, he was given the, uh, a prominent place um, to responding to President Obama's first State of the Union address. Um, a similar thing happened with J.C. Watts, a, um, a very talented African-American congressman from, from Oklahoma back in the 90s. Um, right now, there's there's a rising uh, group of Latino conservatives in the Republican Party, and and Republican Party officials openly talk about using them to argue against the legalization of undocumented immigrants. You know, they're specifically using the kind of racial signaling effects that they can get from from deploying conservative people of color to articulate conservative positions. And that's taking race into account, even though Justice Roberts says we should not be taking race into account. So I'm going to end with a, a kind of big question, um, which is, you know, given that we do have these policies on the books and as, you know, law and society, scholars and sociologists often point out the way that laws operate in the real world can have very different consequences. Mm -hmm. So given that and given all the evidence that you've just provided, um, should civil rights law change to better fit our contemporary racial landscape or should we just learn to redefine um, how we think about the law and how the law plays out? 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great question. I think it's a question that we really need to be debating. Right now, I believe racial realism has emerged without public debate. It has mm -hmm. just sort of happened. Uh, employ employers talk about it, both in the private and in the public sectors. Uh, but we've never really had a debate on it. There's no statutory authorization for using race as a qualification in employment. And I think that we do need to have a debate about it. Um, I, I do believe that in, a, in America in the 2010s, uh, we have a very different kind of uh, demographic situation than we had 50 years ago. You know, Latinos are now um, a larger um, ethno-racial group than African-Americans are. Asian-Americans are the most rapidly growing um, racial group in the United States. In California, Latinos are actually a larger group than um, non-Latino whites. So we have a very different world here, and it, and, it, and it makes sense to revisit our civil rights laws. Um, and I do believe that that we need to we need to modify them certainly start with the debate and then modify them so that we can keep the good parts of racial realism which are that it provides in many cases you know better services and it provides opportunities for non-whites we need to keep those good parts but but try to move the practice more in line with our values and the consensus value in american society is is equal opportunity so i think we have to bring racial realism out into the open um, when employers are using it, they shouldn't be just basing it on stereotypes. They should be able to have some facts and data based on their own experience with how race might help them provide better services. Um, and, uh, and I think that we need to ensure that if an employee is being hired and placed on the basis of their race, that employee should be told that that's what's going on. And they should be given an opportunity to opt out of that kind of placement. And, and that these positions should be limited in time. Mm -hmm. One of the things that uh, I talk about in my book, and I base my research on great um, ethnographic and interview studies that were done by sociologists Sharon Collins and Eli Anderson, we've got to make sure that, um, that, that non-whites are not, are not placed in these racialized jobs and then left, in the words of one of the subjects that Sharon Collins interviewed, left to wither on the vine, left to, to, to be put in the... the the margins of their organizations um, to, to, as part of an effort to, to signify diversity um, rather than being a part of the major profit centers of, the, of, their, of, their, of their workplace. So we got to bring this out into the open. We've got to make sure that, that, people, that people of color are not being limited by, by these kinds of practices and, um, and you know, find a way to manage uh, our unprecedented diversity with our uh, bring that in line with our values on, on equal opportunity. Absolutely. Well, I'm talking to you with John Scrutney, and your book is called After Civil Rights, Racial Realism in the New American Workplace. Um, our listeners can go ahead and Google that. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks, Sarah. It's a great opportunity to speak with you about it.